my son got 25 years. He was sentenced at 17 as an adult and given 25 freaking years. What am I supposed to do with my son when he gets out? What the hell am I supposed to do with him? I don't know that he's not a danger. He's getting no help. He was a child. And uh, I'm going to be given back this adult that's even more broken and it's it's so weird to me because I mean if they're trying to protect society where is the thought process in that when a child is locked up there are far-reaching effects beyond their time served for their families and in their own lives it's been a financial struggle more than once for sure there was there was definitely times where Uh, I went without eating so I could put my last $20 on a phone or so that he could eat, you know, more. Because when he was in county jail, they just didn't really feed them anything. I knew I was at least going to be able to lay on a couch or, you know, even if my stomach was rumbling, I could go outside and take a walk. Whatever was going to add to him feeling comfortable was more important um, because I had comforts that he no longer had access to. It wasn't until probably four years later that I really started talking about it. I just didn't really care anymore, like, what people's view on it was. It was just kind of like, you know what, this is my fucking truth, and this is my kid, and and if people don't start talking about it, then nobody's going to ever understand or have empathy or compassion or see people as human beings. And I said, I don't want that for my kids. A lot of them kids never felt love before. Some of those challenges, you just can't overcome them. Probably no one has ever told you that you was born to be a king. In this episode, we're looking at the ripple effects of the juvenile justice system. Families whose lives dramatically change because of their child's sentence and the lasting effects on formerly incarcerated people's lives that linger long after they're set free. I'm Anthony Wallace, and this is Kids Imprisoned. Prison for kids. Games of kids. Kids, man. A lot of them kids never fell in love before. I still have nightmares about, like, being sent back there. I was, you know, I didn't, I didn't know any better. Some of those kids get locked up. News 21 reporter James Woldridge is here to talk about the far-reaching effects of the system. Good to be here, Anthony. So, James, let's talk about the families of incarcerated children. What impact does being locked up have on a child's parents and siblings? So what we're finding is that having a child behind bars can be financially and emotionally devastating for families. Parents often describe a feeling of powerlessness as their child sits behind bars, especially if they have limited financial resources. Parents find themselves watching as their children's fate is decided at the hands of a punitive legal system. We spoke to Brandy Reels, whose son Chase was incarcerated at 17 for a sex crime in Florida. I didn't have a job at the time. I was at the lowest place in my life already, so that was a good kicker. It, it, I just couldn't move. It was completely disabling. And I, ha- and I knew I had no ability to help him with a lawyer. 
I knew I had no ability to go down there and try to, you know, there was just, there was absolutely nothing I could do, not financially. Brandy lives in Knoxville, Tennessee, 500 miles from where Chase is incarcerated in Florida. After gas, a hotel room, food, and cash for Chase to use at commissary, each trip to visit her son costs Brandy three to four hundred dollars. It's time away from not making money. You know, I'm not one of those kind of employed people that like has so many vacation days where I can still be paid. You know, like if I don't work, I don't get paid. So I've got to save up money, enough money for me to be able to pay my bills without getting paid for that however many days. No matter the financial difficulties she's going through, Brandy always makes it a point to visit Chase every year. It just became really important that um, no matter what I was going through financially or in any way, um, that you know he would, had the ability to at least hear my voice. It's the only thing good he had. And, um, and I know he knows I love him. There's been many, many times over the years where he has told me, um, if, if I didn't have you in my life, mama wouldn't be here, you know? And, um, and I know that's his truth. You know, I'm pretty sure it would be my truth if I was locked up like that and only had one person that, showed me any kind of kindness in my life. Brandy says her son was diagnosed with autism when he was a child. He was tried as an adult when he was 17 and was given a 25-year sentence. Even though he was 17 and still a child, I mean, mentally, he was very much 12 or 13, you know. And so it, it was just um, heartbreaking to hear him trying to make sense out of it all there was this 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 thought that he kept putting out there that was like I'm never gonna do that again I know I know it I know that I'm not gonna do that again I get it I get it now it's wrong you know and the whole time I'm just like it was just obvious he just had no ability to comprehend not only the effect of what he was doing but what was happening to him Um, what was getting ready to happen to him and how this had just impacted the rest of his existence. And he he was lost in in life by this. Chase's half-sister, Drew, was 14 when the crime happened. Here's Drew reading from her journal, which she wrote after Chase's arrest. Chase was a 17-year-old child when he was arrested. He was unwell, confused, and is autistic. He didn't deserve to wait in a cell until he was an adult to be sentenced, and he certainly didn't deserve to be in a regular general population prison instead of a special needs prison. The stigmas surrounding the nature of her brother's crime have been hard for Drew to handle. She says it's hard for her to talk about. At that point, I had no one to talk to about the situation. So it just kind of became harder because it was something that was weighing on me a lot, weighing on my family a lot. And I just had no one to talk to, or if I did talk about it, no one wanted to know about it at a certain point. So I just didn't feel comfortable telling anyone or anything. And it became really built up. Yeah, so originally, I think I probably would have gone towards doing college. Um, That was my original plan, at least. 
I just wanted to go for teaching or something like that. I wanted to teach elementary school for a long time. But when it all happened, it was like two years before my junior year. And I was just kind of in and out of what I wanted to do. Um, if I wanted to do anything college-wise, future-wise. And I would say, especially after his actual sentencing, that I kind of dropped a lot of those goals and I didn't really see myself even graduating high school anymore. Um, so it's been a big leap, you know? I had a career set that I really wanted to do and go to college and do all that life, you know? And then it was just like I don't know if I'm going to make it through high school anymore it was just a really big flip my brother will never be the same if he survives this sentence and it's going to be really rough regardless my mom's going to be almost 70 and she's going to have to give up everyone and everything so that she can like just care for him uh, he's just not being rehabilitated at all by the prison system he's being destroyed by it Chase will be 40 when he's released. He's going to be released to me 25 years later as this prison-raised person who might be, a, a, at this point, a violent sexual offender, you know? And what am I supposed to do with that? He's definitely not getting any help, and I'm terrified. Mm -hmm. And yet, who else is, who else is going to love him? There, we have we have a broken legal system. We have a broken justice system. You know, from from beginning to end, it's there's it's just broken. We have lost the ability to see people as people. Wow. So, I could imagine that this feeling of powerlessness must be pretty pronounced for Brandy. I mean, not only is her son locked up, but he's locked up so far away from her and it costs so much money and time for her just to go see him. Right. And that her relationship with her son is going to be through yearly prison visitation and phone calls until she's almost 70 that must be an impossible situation for any parent to come to terms with. Combined with Brandy's feeling that her son is not getting the treatment and the help that he needs, I think it's easy to see why a parent in Brandy's situation would feel completely stripped of the power to help their own son. Right, because he has, you know, these behavioral health issues that he deals with. I mean, like his sister said, he's autistic, just unwell. That's how she described it. So it seems like he might need some like really specialized treatment that Brandy worries he doesn't always get. Like you said, he's not even set to be released until he's 40, but it seems like Brandy's, you know, still really worried about when that time comes. I mean, she's going to be thinking about him and worrying about him until then and beyond. Yeah, when Chase is scheduled to be released, he'll have spent more than half his life and his entire adult existence behind bars. And so, yeah, I think Brandy's understandably nervous what that penal environment is going to do to someone who she says was mentally not even 17 when he entered the system. 
So James, through the story of Brandy and Chase and, and Chase's sister, we found out a little bit about the impact that incarceration can have on a child's families. What did you learn about the impact that can have on that child themselves after they're released as they grow up and they try to rejoin society? So to answer that question, I want to tell you about Edwin Debro, whose story starts back in 1991. And as you talked about in your first episode, Anthony, this was an era when politicians on both sides of the aisle were finding political support and punitive policies that put more people behind bars. But in 1991, Edwin Debro was a kid trying to survive on the streets of San Antonio, Texas. At 12 years old, he was selling drugs and he'd earned a reputation for violence. Then... During an attempted robbery, he shot a taxi driver, Curtis Edwards, in the head. The crime caused a media frenzy. President Bush even weighed in, calling the shooting truly horrifying, according to a Texas Monthly article. The 12-year-old would be 40 before he walked free again. It's a Tuesday morning in August 2019. The sun's out, and a crowd is gathered in a parking lot outside the Carol S. Vance Unit, a state prison near Houston. Feeling good. I'm feeling blessed. Glad to be out. We spoke to Edwin about his experience leaving prison and moving in with his girlfriend, Megan. I met Megan through a friend of mine uh, who was there with me at the prison, and his girlfriend was Megan's best friend started out as a, uh, a phone call, and then we began to write each other. So when Megan came into the picture, you know, after having numerous conversations, uh, it was decided that I would parole with Megan here by Houston in order to change my whole environment. I wanted the best chance for success, and I felt like a move in an entirely new city, a uh, new neighborhood was the best uh, chance for me to succeed after incarceration. For those leaving incarceration, removing themselves from the environment which originally landed them in trouble can be an important factor for finding success. Corey Fox, a mentor coordinator for the One Heart Project, a nonprofit that helps currently and formerly incarcerated youth, says that youth returning to their home environment is one of the biggest problems that he sees. Going back in the same environment that they came out of, that got them and landed them into the juvenile uh, detention center in the first place. Adults will go to a halfway house or something when they get out, and, and, then, and then they'll stay there for a period of time, and then they go to work, and they try to. there's people in there that try to help them regain their life back and be a member of society. But in the juvenile detention, that juvenile, they go back to their parents. or And then that environment with the parents is not a good environment because now the parents need counseling and the parents need something as well because you're bringing a kid right back into the same environment and they only are a product of their environment. 
After more than two-thirds of his life behind bars, Edwin struggled learning to freely navigate society for the first time since middle school. You know, some things uh, surprised me. Other things confused me. Uh, so it was just a learning process for me and me having to ask my support system questions in order to be able to navigate through the things that I didn't understand. Edwin's felony will remain on his record for the rest of his life. With every job application, rental application, he has to disclose that violent history. So this decision that Edwin made when he was 12 has become a lingering obstacle. So it's a lot of challenges, you know, that you're going to face getting out of prison. Some of those challenges, you just can't overcome them. No, no matter how hard you try. Just like right now, I'm dealing with the fact that I can't put my name on the lease, you know, uh, because of the background check. They, they won't let, allow me to lease a home. And I think that that's a long-term problem that needs to be addressed. I mean, even, even with apartments, apartments won't allow you to live there if you have a felony. Because before I got out, Megan, she was looking for a house and she had looked at an apartment and then they told her, no, he can't live here if he has a felony. Finding a job wasn't easy. Some employers wouldn't hire Edwin because of his felony. He had to turn down an offer because it was too far away and he had no way to get there. He ended up landing a job at a national pizza chain where he used to walk five miles to work each day. There are some things that happen in prison that are just terrible and horrendous. I mean, and it will make you really think like, man, what, where, where are we living at? And getting transitioning from there, you know, and getting out and coming out here, I was prepared to, you know, face anything. I, my mindset was that there's nothing worse that can happen now. You know, like I've, I've seen it all. Even just facing any minor setbacks out here to me would be like, man, it's just a piece of cake. You know, because there's so many opportunities out here. And if you really want something bad enough, you have to just work hard at it to get it or to achieve it. Yes, I can't erase the fact of my criminal conviction, but, but this is what I've been doing now. This is what I continue to do going forward every day. Look at this. Look at this huge transition from a 12-year-old kid to a 40-year-old man. Well, so, I mean, the fact that Edwin resorted to walking five miles to work every day is really just an indication of how big of an effect his incarceration has on it. I mean, it must have been impossible for him to get another job, you know, if he's willing to go to those lengths to get to this place that would hire him. Right. Five miles is a long walk. And Edwin didn't have a lot of other options. One thing you have to remember is that Edwin was incarcerated when he was 12 years old. So he'd probably never had experience driving a car. So even just learning to drive a vehicle getting a permit so you can practice and then taking a driving test, getting your license. These are all obstacles that 
formerly incarcerated people have to deal with, with no means of transportation. Right. Yeah. I mean, you almost take for granted everything that you learn about, about living in the modern world from the time that you turn 12 on. I mean, it's probably just impossible for any of us to imagine what it would be like to just go away, you know, at, at the age of 12 and try to come back into the world and learn everything from scratch. Edwin's story really shows why it is so important to prepare for release before that moment comes. And that reminds me of a story that I found in my own reporting. Really? Tell me about it. So I talked to this guy, Tyus Reed, and Tyus is now 24 years old. But when he was 17, he was a teenager on the streets of Tacoma, Washington. He was in a gang. He had very little supervision at home. And he was involved in a drive-by shooting. Nobody was hurt, but he fired shots at an innocent family's car. And he, as a result of that, he spent a little over four years in both juvenile detention facilities as well as adult prisons. So Tyus told me that there was very little in the way of rehabilitative services in these adult and juvenile facilities. No one was really mentoring them or speaking to them about their future, what they would do after they got out. That is with the exception of one particular counselor that would come to see Tyus regularly. And I was talking to the peer counselor and I said, I remember she told me, she said, yeah, when you get out, you can do what I do. And I was like, what do you mean I could do what you do? I can't even comprehend. I'm in jail right now. And you work. I mean, it looks like you work for this jail. And you're telling me I could get out and work for this? I can't, I can't even see that. I wish somebody would have told me that before I went to jail. I didn't know anything about careers or anything. I didn't know about anything. I'm, it was like a real clear, uh, clarifying moment. I didn't meet anybody else who offered me that sort of information, that sort of encouragement. So she was the only one. So a lot of them kids never felt love before, especially from somebody they don't know. And that's that's a whole nother. That, that's what Evelyn showed me. She showed me love. And that's what touched me. A person that's not in my family, a person that's, that doesn't know me, showed me love and showed me showed me opportunity. And that's, you know, you don't want to let people like that down. And that gives extra motivation for you. And my dream and vision was when I was in direct services was, you know, one that the youth that I served would end up doing the work that I got to do because it was so empowering and healing. So this is Evelyn Clark, Tyus's peer counselor. And two, that we would help dismantle this system that's been built to really incriminate people of color. And that's not just the incarceration system, but it's mental health systems. It's all different systems. Evelyn was inspired to do this work because she too was wrapped up in the system. She grew up in the Bay Area in California and she was arrested for a drug offense. And she said that the police officer that arrested her told her, you are Mexican, you're sick, you're going to jail. And she said that this just labeled her as a criminal in his eyes. And she was just taken into incarceration, not really offered much help and it wasn't until she ended up in Oregon a little bit later in life that she found one other special mentor that really turned her life around. I had a probation officer. He was the very first 
probation officer I had that said to me, or actually anybody, to be honest, in my life at the time, I was 17, said to me that I was worth something and that I didn't have to end up as my, how my family said I would end up or how other professionals said. And I really like, I never felt like validation or any type of like warm and fuzzies before. And so that was like, oh, This must be a common theme we're seeing, this idea that formerly incarcerated people are helping each other to transition out of the system. Because this reminds me of my conversation with Corey Fox, the mentor who works for One Heart Project. So I continue to do all this stuff over and over again, repeating the same cycles over and over again. You know, until one day I met a man that really actually sat me down and he actually talked to me. When I was locked up, in the adult jail, he said, man, how long are you going to continue to do this? How long are you going to continue to do this? You said that you got a kid on the way. And you said that you didn't want to be like your dad. You wanted to be in your kid's life. And I said, I don't want that for my kids. I don't want them to repeat the same thing that I repeated. So at that moment, I just prayed and got on my knees and I asked God to change me and to help me become a better person. Now, Corey tries to be that same voice for the kids he mentors. I've done, did some of the same things as y'all guys doing out there in the streets now. Drugs, alcohol, selling drugs, in a gang, been through all that, you know. So I tell them that just because that's a fact about you, that doesn't mean that that's your reality or that's your truth. The truth is you was born to be this. And and the reason why that you're not this is because probably no one has ever told you that you was born to be a king. Right. And so Corey seems to have a pretty similar mission to Evelyn. But, you know, obviously not everybody sees the young people that are involved in the system this way. Corey and Evelyn are really committed to helping them and they really think that they can be helped. Um, This is Daniel Koski. He is the chief of police in Normandy Park, Washington, which is near Seattle. I definitely think there are some kids, unfortunately, who reach that point in their life where they become pardoned that I'm not sure there's any saving them. I mean, I, I wish there were, but, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I guess, a bigger believer that I would rather spend those resources on some of those kids who are more on the margins, who... Maybe there's more opportunity to prevent from moving further down the curve than trying to bring people back who are so far down the curve. I think the likelihood of success is not great. The youth that I've worked with who a lot of the times were throwaway youth, you know, they've committed some some crime and landed themselves 20 years. Um, And I remember some of the staff saying, you know, you're wasting your time on these young people. And now they're leading national committees. And I just think back like, man, if I would have just listened, who knows like where they would have ended up. These are human beings and they still deserve support regardless of what they've done. Especially youth, like, I'm sorry, but it's like, these are the people that are gonna be releasing back into society. Don't you want them to? you know, be on committees and councils and don't you want them to succeed and get the help they need so they don't reoffend? 
This episode was produced by James Woldridge and Anthony Wallace. Michelle Abercrombie was an assistant producer for this episode. News 21 reporters Lindsay Nichols, Joss Fox, Sorel Groh, Nicole Sroka, and Jeff Avino also contributed to this episode. Additional audio courtesy of Yaki Smith. Our theme music was created by Anthony Wallace. Kids in Prison is part of a larger project produced by Carnegie Knight News 21, an investigative journalism program headquartered at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication in Phoenix, Arizona.